Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay, monkeys, as you know, we've gathered an infinite number of you so that you on an infinite number of typewriters can produce the works of Shakespeare. How many of you are really psyched up about this project? (laughs) All right, I've been getting a lot of questions from you about bathroom breaks. Basically, it's every four hours, and please do actually use the bathroom, okay? (laughs) And just to be totally clear, you're all waiving the worldwide right to publish in other formats, in other languages, including formats readable by the visually impaired, the right to give third-party permission, and the right to enter into agreements with reproduction rights organizations for the collective licensing of rights, okay? (laughs) Okay, so noted by screeching. Okay, one last thing. Although we do have an infinite number of monkeys, we're a little short on typewriters. We've got basically two options. How many of you would be willing to double up on a typewriter? And how many of you would be willing to go to Brooklyn right now and steal all the typewriters the hipsters have? (laughs) All right, that's a consensus. Meanwhile, we're live from the New Britain Museum of American Art today with our own salute to the typewriter. And now the nurse just finished changing his ribbon. (laughs) Colin McEnroe. Why did that get such a big laugh? Well, first of all, we are live from New Britain. Hey, New Britain, make some noise here. Let them know you're alive. Specifically, we're live from the beautiful New Britain Museum of American Art, uh, where, in fact, uh, there is an exhibit. Exhibit. There's either an exhibit or an exhibition, and I think that's what what tore me apart right at that moment, uh, of typewriters. It is called Clack, no, Click, Clack, Ding, the American Typewriter. Uh, it runs uh, through uh, from March 8th through June 1st, so get down here now. Uh, and we're going to spend some time talking about the romance of the typewriter, the aesthetics of the typewriter, the history of the typewriter. I think that's sort of where we should begin. Uh, we, we're going to, first of all, begin with uh, Greg Fudach. He is a typewriter collector, uh, typewriter enthusiast, and uh, a pseudo-typewriter historian. So he says, Walter, historian, <laughs> Walter Woodward is not. Walter Historian would be a good name for you. I like it. Yeah, Walter Woodward is not a pseudo-historian. He is an associate professor of history at the University of Connecticut. He's the Connecticut state historian. They're here with us in one of the galleries at the uh, New Britain Museum of American Art, along with a wonderful, extremely attractive crowd. Uh, As we go along here, uh, we'll also be enlisting their aid. Uh, Some of them have uh, typewriter stories and reminiscences uh, to share with us. So towards the end of the show, we'll be uh, circulating a mic around uh, to hear some of what they have to say. But let's begin with this kind of amazing story of the typewriter. And Greg, um, the story of the typewriter in America for for many decades uh, is uh, fundamentally, or at least first and foremost, a Connecticut story, right? How, how much of an epicenter was Connecticut? Connecticut's first typewriter, it was a typewriter predecessor, 1844, something called the Thurber Patent Printer. That was before even the, the, the shows and glidden of 1873. They had printers before they had typewriters. It was just, the typewriter term was coined by Remington, so that's, that's where that term comes from. That's why we, we call it a writing machine. But it started in about 1883 in earnest. It was uh, the second commercially typewriter ever was produced in Connecticut. It was the American Writing Machine Company, uh, started by a fellow named George Washington Newton Yost, who was uh, also instrumental in bringing the Scholes and Glidden typewriter to, to the public. So it began in 1883 and then snowballed from there. 
to the Hartford Typewriter Company, also on Capitol Avenue, to the Blickensdurfer Company in uh, Stamford, to the Postal Typewriter and, uh, Company in Norwalk, and eventually the Royal and Underwood, the two beasts uh, in Hartford, which were within blocks of each other and employed a ridiculous amount of people. And as you come to this uh, exhibit, you'll see typewriters not only from all those places, but Stanford, Norwalk, Middletown, uh, Derby, uh, a lot of different places. Walter, sort of help us fit this into the industrial history of Connecticut. Um, I mean, how, how does the typewriter fit in? Is it kind of just the dominant thing, or is it sort of one star in a, a bigger constellation, or both? For about 20 years, it's definitely a, the brightest star in Hartford's industrial crown. It, we became the capital of typewriter production for the world because of our previous history in the Industrial Revolution. We were the epicenter of the machine tool industry and had the kind of critical mass this new communications revolution needed. The story of the American Writing Machine Company and how it got to Hartford is instructive. It was started in New York in 1880. They found they couldn't get or keep a skilled labor force there. so. A couple years later, they responded to inducements from a little town in Pennsylvania, Cory, Pennsylvania, out in the west, offered them a lot of money to move their factory out there. They went there, imported skilled labor, found that those people grew discontented and left. And then in 1885, George Fairfield went to the board and said, we need to move to Hartford because they have what the Hartford Board of Trade called the kind of environment where mind can meet with mind, meaning we had the industrial genius that could really help a company succeed. The machine writing company came here. Within two years, it had all new machinery, was incredibly successful, and by 1889, it was the preferred writing machine of the Associated Press, Western Union, and the governments of Britain, France, and Russia. And I know Governor Malloy right now is working hard to lure some other typewriter companies to Connecticut, but it's... It's been slow going, obviously. Um, Wait till the busway's done. Yeah. And, and so, uh, Greg, the, the Royal and Underwood were, as you say, the two beasts. Like, Correct. How big were right. these beasts? Is, is there a way you can tell the story with numbers? With numbers, um, each of them employed somewhere uh, around 5,000 to 7,000 people at peak, and they were within blocks of each other. So, and, and they were, they were producing the most type. Royal, for example, was producing. Um, the most typewriters in the world through the 1950s. Um, as far as numbers go, um, in the, uh, I'm losing it now. Well, let, let me come back to the numbers. I mean, Underwood uh, and Royal were also, I mean, they, they're sort of legendary among writers. It's Faulkner, it's Hemingway, it's uh, Ian Fleming writing uh, the Bond novels. Didn't he have one of those gold? Uh, Ian, Ian Fleming ordered a 1950s Royal Quiet Deluxe. He ordered his for about uh, $74 back in 1953 or so, and he was, he, uh, he was an aficionado of all things gold, so that's why he purchased it. Um, his did end up selling at a Christie's auction uh, for a record amount of $89,000 at the time. Um, after he had passed away because of the provenance. And there is, a gold, there is a gold typewriter in the show for anybody that would like to see it. Let me see as we go along here. And the, we're going to talk a little bit more about the history and, and nature of the typewriter business. 
In the second segment of the show, we'll talk a little bit more about the aesthetics, about collecting typewriters. Greg will walk us through uh, some of the ones that he loves. And I want to save a lot of time for the final segment. First of all, we want to talk about th there is kind of a typewriter renaissance going on right now. Not in the sense necessarily that people are making any new ones, mm. but they're kind of being rediscovered by a whole new clientele. Uh, you heard about hipsters uh, in the intro. They're not the only ones. And there's some uh, amazing things going on with typewriters. And there's some very good reasons for that, I think. Um, but, you know, Walter, as we're telling the story of typewriters, uh, the first, say, 60 years or so of the 20th century, I assume we're also telling the story of American clerical work, right? I mean, uh, Hemingway bought maybe one or two typewriters. Faulkner bought a couple of typewriters. You can't make a living uh, selling to great writers. So I assume this is sort of the story of kind of pink-collar America? Well, it, absolutely. The typewriter helped affect a remarkable shift in American labor. In the 19th century, most clerical jobs were held by black-coated men. These were trusted subordinates, multitaskers who worked in a company. They had a function that we'd probably equate to middle management in firms. But with the explosion of the Industrial Revolution, and especially the explosions in insurance and finance, much of it headquartered in Hartford, companies found that they needed to, to do record keeping in a new way with an absolute professionalization and specialization and at a volume that multitaskers couldn't do. Typewriters helped them do that. And what's really interesting about these new corporate enemies, entities is they realized that they could then uh, fragment work, make it specialized, and hire young, single, white, middle-class women just out of high school, pay them much less than they'd pay a man, have them do part of the work, and they created the category of what Remington called Miss Remington, the young single woman who was the foundation of clerical work up until the 1950s. You know, he's talking about Remington, Greg. Um, in a way, Hartford and Royal was the upstart that kind of went after Remington, right? Didn't Remington kind of have a chokehold for a while? Remington kind of went after Royal. Um, Remington... Remington was a monster, and eventually it and several other typewriter companies, including the Calligraph, um, Yoast Company, the American Writing Machine Company, uh, they started something called the Union Typewriter uh, Company, which was basically sort of a trust, a mafia. They, they fixed the price on typewriters for about... 30 years at $100 a machine. The Godfather was basically based they, on this, that's right? Basically what, you know, right? That's basically what they did. They didn't mention they typewriters did. that much in the And they would but. either, I'm sorry, they would either absorb smaller typewriter companies or they, they would file suit after suit and just t take them to, to court until they would um, either uh, close shop or get absorbed. Um, but Royal was fortunate enough because a guy by the name of Thomas Fortune Ryan, he was... Uh, extremely wealthy. He invested in the company. He invested something like $220,000, which in today's money is about $4 million, I think, <clears throat> which is a drop in the bucket for him. By all accounts, when he died in today's money, he was a multi-billionaire. And when Remington went after Royal, um, Royal had the full support of uh, Thomas Fortune Ryan, full financial support. And Thomas Fortune Ryan uh, hung out with the likes of Guggenheim and P.T. Dodge, uh, so Remington, Remington finally met its adversary, and, um, and, and Royal, Royal typewriters were so, also sold at first in all of those companies that Thomas Fortune Ryan had a vested interest in. So Royal just hit the ground running, never looked back. And what, what upset Remington the most was the advertising. R uh, Royal specifically said that they were going to sell their typewriters at $65 each. 
$35 less than any of the Remingtons. And they also said why. They said there's no reason for anybody to sell a typewriter for $400 because at most they can cost $28 to make. So at $65, you're already doubling your profit. At $100, you're a crook. And, and so Remington didn't appreciate that. They may be the only American company ever to see what their real costs were. Um, seems almost <laughs> un-American to do that. And Walter, the advertising competition, uh, I mean, this really was Coke versus Pepsi. This was Toyota versus Honda. This was uh, Apple versus everybody else, right? Royal, Royal was brilliant in capturing being one of the first people to go after the mass market broadcast media. They bought exclusive advertising when they introduced their first portable in 1926. They were the exclusive sponsor of the first national radio uh, uh, broadcast, and that was the Dempsey-Tunney fight. Over 20 million people are estimated to have listened to that. So that was a great marketing start for them. The next year, somebody came up with the brilliant plan. They bought a Ford tri-motor airplane, and they wanted to convince people that their portables were tough and could take it. So they packed up 200 of these portables in crates, and they flew the airplane over dealers and dropped them from the air. <laughs> this proved so successful that they ultimately did 11,000 airdrops of their portables. Only 10 of them broke. Oh, the humanity. Um, the, uh... <laughs> and, and I would add that Royal was late to the game when it came to the portable right. typewriters market. They were almost 10 years if, uh, behind everybody else when, when they made theirs in the 1920s. But it, it was where the progression of the typewriter was going, was towards the, the portables market, which was also uh, more, more needed and wanted in, in an average household. So that they, they did a really nice job making a really fantastic machine where everybody else kind of overlooked it. And in, in fact, I, used to, I talked to a lot of salesmen um, from, the, from the royal companies. They were told sometimes that uh, uh, the royal typewriters, the portables, were inferior. They were, they were throwaway typewriters. Um, apparently, they weren't because they're still around. And people bought them more than they did the, the regular standard desktop typewriters. And it is, the portable market is what solidified royal standing through the 1950s. And Greg, some of this also involved creating markets that didn't exist, right? For example, for you, you've got some there for a children's Correct. typewriter, right? Correct. Correct. Uh, the children's typewriters, uh, they taught touch typing. They're very basic typewriters. They're very stripped down, but what they have, some of them, most of them is colored keyboards so that a, a particular set, set of keys corresponds with the pinky, another set of keys corresponds with a middle finger or a ring finger, and they're meant to teach the child which finger to use on which key, touch typing, the, um, the, like I say, they're stripped down, there's no ribbon reverse, there's no line select, and the typeface is also significantly larger so the child can see. So that's a specialty typewriter, right? Um, and obviously the final advertising coup, Walter, uh, most recently was the placement of an Underwood typewriter in House of Cards. Um, <laughs> right, did you see the episode? Have you seen uh, it yet? Yeah, it was yeah. fabulous. It's the last episode of the second series of House of Cards just before the Machiavellian Frank Underwood becomes, becomes the president of the United States. He's been scheming since episode one to get there. And this is his most dastardly move. He is on the outs with the president who hates him. And his wife says, you go give him your heart. So he goes into his office and he pulls out an Underwood portable typewriter and he puts it on his desk and he starts to write a letter to the president 
where he just really does kind of tell the story of his life and offers to take the fall for these acts the president is accused of, which of course Frank himself had actually done. But he, offer, he says he'll take, the, he'll take the hit for the president to prove how much he honors and respects him. The president doesn't let him do it and Frank becomes president. But the fact that he, he does it spoiler, on this spoiler. Underwood typewriter is, uh, I think, important. Well, and, and I mean, I think it's also, uh, there's a subtext there, Greg, which is that um, this whole idea of writing with your heart, that you're going to write a letter. I mean, obviously, Frank has no heart, but, um, but you're going to pretend you have a heart, and you're going to write a letter uh, to somebody. And, and so you haul out this old typewriter, and there's a little line where, where apparently his father gave him the typewriter and said, these Underwoods created an empire. Now you create a, another one. But, wow. but that writing with a heart thing, there is sort of an organic quality to a typewriter. A typewriter has a signature, right? I mean, right. famously, it used to be in cr crime novels. Conan Doyle did it, and, and in real life, in the Alger Hist trial, in Leopold and Loeb, uh, part of forensics was you could, you could match a typewriter to the letter it came from. Correct. You could, you could literally uh, match the typeface, and each type bar, and this is going to get technical, they have little identifications to them. They're very specific to typewriters. And yeah, there, there is something romantic about the machine, and it's probably what's, uh, you'll probably touch on later, what's moving this, this typewriter resurgency, that it's more personal. It's so much better to get a letter in the mail from somebody that's either handwritten or typewritten, which is actually the exact opposite of what uh, the reception that the original typewriter, the Scholes and Glidden, um, got because the Scholes and Glidden only typed uppercase. Mm -hmm. And it was, if you've ever gotten an email from a friend who for, took the caps lock off, it feels like he's yelling at you. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the same sentiment they, that the public um, uh, felt about the early Scholes and Glidden. I, I got a few, uh, one or twice, once or twice, uh, this is quite a few years ago now, obviously, I got uh, communications from Joyce Carol Oates, who at that time would send a postcard of herself. It would be a picture of her on the front, and then she would type. But people used to type postcards, mm -hmm. uh, which I always thought was sort of a strange thing. But people, you would get a, like a typed missive from uh, from Joyce on the back of the <coughs> postcard. Um, and I just I should complete the story. I had a dog at the time named Roy who hated the mailman, and he wanted to kill the mailman. And so we had the kind of door that had the slot in it. And so every day the mail would, when the mail came, he, he, Roy would be waiting. And as the mail came through the slot, he would grab it out of the mailman's hand and then shake it and <laughs> hurl it all over the um, room. And uh, letters would go back down behind the radiator and I'd find, you know, bills and checks three months later and stuff. Um, and on that particular day, uh, I picked up the Joyce Carol Oates postcard and there were teeth marks all over her. And it was like, <laughs> Like something out of a Joyce Carol Oates novel. Um, all right, so we're going to take a quick break here. I want to come back talk a little bit more about the aesthetics of typewriters, why Greg collects them, mm -hmm. uh, uh, why they are beautiful, uh, and we want to leave a lot of time for the final segment. Some of you will want to talk during that. But um, first of all, once again, as we go out, how about uh, showing everybody how excited you are here in New Britain? Yeah! We'll be right back after this. All right, we're live from the New Britain Museum of American Art. What a great place to be. What a great place to broadcast from, too. I'm surrounded by all this, these amazing paintings. And then over my left shoulder, if you can imagine that, this at home, uh, is this exhibit uh, of typewriters uh, that uh, Greg Fudach uh, has brought here. How many typewriters do you actually have in your personal collection? In my personal collection, about 75. Oh, jeez. But I have a total of about 300. The other ones I kind of resell, refurbish, 
cannibalized for parts. As you can imagine, nobody's making replacement parts for typewriters anymore. So the basement is full. The garage is kind of full. And my my wife is... I was going to say, I met your wife today, and she apparently is still speaking to you, which I yeah, find... I'm, it's actually her, her fault that I'm in this. She dragged me to a tag sale once. Um, the first just was, was a there. I just kind of saw it from a distance, and I made a beeline for it, haggled my way down to $5 from $10, and um, ever since then, I've just been into it about 15 you seem, years ago. You, you seem like it might, you might be a year or two younger than me and Walter. Um, so, I mean, typewriters probably, like, Walter, you owned how many typewriters in your life, would you guess? Probably 10. Yeah. Um, and, and, and me too. I own a whole bunch of them. I, I would that you never owned a typewriter that you actually had to use no, as your means no. of. So what, what, what's this all about? I'm not really sure. I just, I just really enjoy the typewriter. I, I enjoy the aesthetic. I enjoy the industrial design element of it. But more than that, when I get a typewriter, I, I, I actually do research. I do a lot of research for myself. And I like to know who the inventor was, what, what kind of um, environment was the typewriter made in? What was the thought process? Was it part of a particular art movement or something like that? <laughs> so everything that's outside the typewriter really, really intrigues me. And I mean, Walter, you know, speaking for our generation, I mean, these are machines that had, I mean, I love computers. I'm happy to, you know, do word processing. It obviously makes things a heck of a lot easier. But I don't ever, I've never felt like any of those machines had a soul. And at times I did feel about typewriters as though I was in some kind of divine uh, connection with them. You know, when I think back to when I was using typewriters in school and then, then when I started in advertising, uh, they, were, they were work machines in a mm. lot of ways. Right. And, and they were our formal communications mechanisms. And you might write on a legal pad, but mm. when it came time to present to the client, you typed it up and sent it off to the pool. It's interesting now that they do have a sort of romantic quality, especially at a time when in primary schools and secondary schools, we're moving kids away from learning cursive and everything they're going to be is in type. So mm -hmm. the, the typewriter really takes on a new sort of uh, uh, image as the romantic form of communication. I feel like I might be uh, one of the last people to use them in one romantic way, which is in 1978 or 9, uh, there was a conclave to elect a pope. And the, current sent, the Hartford Current sent me over there. And it was just right at the moment when telex wasn't quite right. Nothing, we were right at a technological moment where everything was going to get a lot more smooth, but it wasn't quite there at that moment. And so they were trying to figure out how I was going to file my stories. And Irving Kraftsau, then the managing editor, gave me his uh, Olivetti portable. I think it was an Olivetti. Uh, so I was like a foreign correspondent with an Olivetti portable. And I would write <laughs> things, and then I would just dictate them over the phone. And it was all very primitive. But it, was, it, it is sort of the romance of that time. So Greg, uh, give us, walk us through one or two of your favorite typewriters. What, what do you love most in your collection? And tell I, us why, too. I, I love. I think Don't I mentioned. Er You're going to go off. Uh, I mentioned earlier the the stainless steel from the 1930s, the Royal Portable. I love that for the story. And the story goes, that, you know, a woman contacts me. She says she's got this typewriter, and I get to talking with her. And she says, "This was in my family. It was my grandfather's." So I ask, "What did your grandfather do?" And he used to run uh, uh, rail cars full of alcohol for the man. They called him the man, and that man was Al Capone. <laughs> right. So. As it happens, after they lifted, and this was during Prohibition, after Prohibition was lifted, the grandfather starts a bar because he doesn't know anything else other than booze. And the people that visited his bar or his patrons were the same people he used to work for, so not the best characters in society. 
Um, one day a fellow walks in with a case and he's particularly thirsty and they start to haggle, beer for a typewriter, beer for a typewriter. And eventually the guy gets uh, some refreshments and uh, the woman's grandfather gets the typewriter. And so when I got the typewriter, I opened it up and I looked at it and it's stainless steel. I didn't know what to make of it and I brought it to a bunch of typewriter geeks and we all looked at it. It's original. And probably what had happened was that this guy lifted the typewriter, stole the typewriter from the factory. It was a prototype. And it's been in that family, you know, the woman's family ever since, and now, now it's in my collection. So I, I love that typewriter. Yeah. There's a small amount of blood on the typewriter, too. I didn't <laughs> see it there in the case. So there's still some unanswered questions. I think I saw a, a typewriter. Was there, is there one out there that purports to be a noiseless typewriter? It is. The noiseless typewriter was invented by a guy named Wellington Parker Kidder. He was one of the more prolific inventors. He invented something called the Franklin typewriter in the 1890s, which is a beautiful piece of machinery. But the noiseless typewriter, if you can imagine a room full of 100 people, or just, just however many people there are in here, a few dozen, all typing away at the same time, the noise is deafening. Mm -hmm. Click, clack, click, clack, ding, ding, ding. Um, so Parker resolved to make a noiseless typewriter. And, and ultimately what he made was a typewriter that was just less noisy than everything else on the market. Um, Remington took notice in 1924. They bought the noiseless typewriter factory, which was in Middletown, Connecticut. And actually, the factory is still there uh, on Main Street, I believe. Um, but when Remington took over the factory, it is, it is now known that these noiseless machines helped uh, uh, Remington stay afloat through the Great Depression. It actually doubled their profit margin during the Great Depression, which is just unbelievable. I mean, it probably is also the case that to whatever degree you sort of started typing on it, I mean, the, the thing, the noise thing was triggering another memory in me, which is that when I worked for many years at the Hartford Current, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the people who were journalists at that time had worked initially on typewriters, uh, regular kinds of typewriters, and some of them just beat the hell out of the typewriter. They made a lot of pounding of it. Malcolm Johnson was famous for typing really, really um, hard. But we had all transitioned to IBM Selectrics. Right. But people would just still hit those keys really hard as if that made a difference. I mean, however hard you, and I probably make more noise on the keyboard than most of the people I work with now because I'm used to pounding away. I mean, I started out on a, on a Smith, they're nodding back there. Betsy just nodded at my son and said, yeah, he does make a lot of noise typing. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned the IBM Selectric. There's a, there's a machine here called the Blickensdurfer, made in Stanford. That is the predecessor to the IBM by almost 70 years. The IBM Selectric in particular, which came out in 1961, is famous for this type ball, this AKA the golf ball. That mechanism, that feature was made on the Blickensdurfer, like I said, 70 years ago. Really? It, it was. Huh. And in fact, the IBM Selectric in no small part buried the manuals uh, market back in 1961. It was just the natural evolutionary process of the typewriter. And as the IBM gained more traction in the marketplace, the Royals and the Underwoods lost. You know, in a way whose details now elude me, uh, when there was a the big controversy over the uh, Air National Guard service of George W. Bush, it wound up being uh, resolved, or, or, or in fact, 60 Minutes reporting was compromised to a certain degree because the wrong kind of typewriter had been used. There was some kind of, and, and it did involve IBM Selectrics too. There was a whole a whole issue about 
the wrong kind of typewriter. Something was typed on a Selectric, and the Selectric didn't exist, Did not exist when at it the was time, dated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Walter, I, I'm going to ask Craig some uh, about this too, but um, obviously this era of Connecticut manufacturing, there are going to be a lot of incredible sort of worker stories and, and management stories that go along with it. Um, do you have a sense of how well this state or anybody has done of preserving all that stuff? I mean, most of these people are not alive anymore, right? Well, it's out there, but it's out there in bits and pieces. I don't think there's been a coordinated effort certainly to capture the history of typewriters in Connecticut. But if you search assiduously, you can find a lot of it, but it still, it needs that one person to come along and say, this is going to be my dissertation or this is going to be my book yeah. and go with it. Well, uh, and Greg, you have talked to people whose relatives anyway were part of this industry, right? Correct. I'm, I'm kind of trying to do that where I'm trying to collect oral histories while some people are still alive. Some folks that worked at the factories or maybe their parents worked at their factories or grandparents worked at the factories. And in particular, I'm interested in the last 20 to 30 years of the Royal and Underwood factories. Um, when they went from an all-time high in the 1950s of selling these typewriters to an all-time low when these factories were now uh, being uh, slowly decimated and outsourced and eventually closed or burned down. So I am, I am trying to collect these oral histories, and uh, anybody that has anything they want to share, please contact me via website or anything like that. So you're interested in the most depressing part of the typewriter story. Right. Well, it uh, wasn't depressing. The 1950s were just... a you know, the, the, for Royal in particular, it was the most profitable, the biggest manufacturer in the world. And then all of a sudden, uh, by 1972, the factory closes here in Hartford. In 1992, it burns down. Hmm. That's sad. But, but you have collected some interesting stories. For example, um, uh, there were people, once again, I assume this is a pink-collar job, who just tested typewriters, right? They wrote the same sentence right. over and over again? So I ask people, I say, what did you do? How, did, how long have you worked there? And, and one woman said she, she did quality control. So, of course, my next question was, what, what do you mean you did quality control? So she says, for eight hours a day, she'd get one typewriter after another, and she'd type out the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Next, quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, one after the other. And you're talking about a shining moment, like the shining with Jack. <laughs> this, this woman was living it. I, I was really interested to find in one of the first histories of the typewriter, someone who had been with uh, Scholes and, and Glidden mm -hmm. at the start of the company. One of the first sentences typed on the Scholes and Glidden typewriter was, now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and actually, there have been some scientific studies recently that indicate that the quick brown fox does not jump over the lazy dog. So think about all the times that that's been typed in order to test something. Uh, it's apparently it's a scientifically invalid statement. Um, all right, I want to leave a lot of time here uh, for the final segment here. I, I think we may go to a, a break right here and come back. So uh, first of all, we're all excited to be here in New Britain, aren't we? Yeah. And we'll be back after the proverbial this. number of monkeys on an infinite number of typewriters was trying to produce the works of Shakespeare. They'd need an infinite number of liquid paper, which was invented by the mother of Mike Nesmith, who was one of the monkeys. I just freaked myself out. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Anna Novak, Tess Aronson, and Skylar Magnoli. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Kevin Spacey. 
For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff playing Beethoven's Ode to Joy on IBM Selectrix, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, we'll revisit our conversation about MDMA, better known as Molly or Ecstasy. And now, back to Colin. We all took ecstasy before doing the show, too. I'm <laughs> sure it's coming through. Um, all right, so uh, we're here at the New Britain Museum of American Art. We're talking about uh, typewriters. Uh, we're going to take questions from the audience uh, here pretty soon, but there's some things we want to go over. Actually, Walter, one uh, sad story that we haven't uh, told, Walter Woodward, Woodward our, our state historian, is here. One sad story we haven't uh, told, as long as we're talking about stories about the end of the typewriter era. 1992, I think, uh, and I, I know because I was a reporter uh, even then, the, uh, uh, the Royal built burns down, right? Yeah, the Royal Typewriter Building had been, or the complex had been a landmark in Parkville since it was built and had been empty for about a decade, right? Right. Well, empty except for like all sorts of people who weren't supposed to be yeah. in there were in there. Yeah, and uh, a, a, it, it was one of Hartford's worst fires. And, it, you know, now it's a stop and shop, right? Yeah. Now you Correct. go, it's the, it's the Royal Plaza and that's all that's left of what was really for an industrial building, a beautiful building. It's a big loss. Yeah, and, and so it took a day and a night to uh, put the fire out. Uh, 100 firefighters fought it. Um, and it was actually sort of, it was one of the, it was a bad thing too, which was that it was sort of a, it was kind of an attractive nuisance building. Uh, and some kids or somebody had put fireworks up there like a, a day or so before. The fire department came, put it, thought they'd put it out, went away, and instead it was uh, a day and a half and burned to the ground. A terrible thing. What were you going to say, Greg? I was going to say if you happen to go on U Park and you drive by the Royal Plaza, you can actually see right above the, the name, there's still a photo, an image of a typewriter up there. Um, and the Underwood factory, which is down the road, I don't know if you're planning, that is still around, part of it anyways, and it is now the real Artways, which is... Uh, Oh, and I think they have like a like a little exhibit of typewriters there as well that you can kind of check out. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about this kind of typewriter renaissance uh, that's going on right now. Uh, there is uh, a group of people who are sort of back in love with the typewriter. Uh, they are sometimes equated with hipsters, although I don't think they, they all are. There's actually a guy who... Um, who, who does this uh, thing where he goes up the, to the Highline Park in New York with a typewriter and offers to write a story uh, for anybody who comes by. He types it on, the, on an old-fashioned uh, typewriter and, and just gives it to them. And I think he does the, whole, the same kind of thing. On, I think it's called Roving Typist or something like that. Right. And he is the Roving Typist. And there are other, others in San Francisco, Ohio, that do the same thing. They just kind of go to a park, set up with an old manual typewriter, put out a, a cardboard sign, uh, a cardboard uh, with, where they've mentioned, you know, we'll type up a poem donations welcome something to that effect and they'll just sit there and pluck away and of course they they get photographed and they get plastered all over social media and dubbed hipsters right and so which is is somebody still making ribbons is oh absolutely actually because of this typewriter resurgence that we've had renaissance over the last 5 years uh, several manufacturers have gotten back into the business of making typewriter making typewriter ribbons um, and and the fact that their their pictures went up on the internet i think is very meaningful to, to the parents who are supporting them in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> the, um, there's also, this fascinated me, there's this typewriter hack, uh, it's, it's called the USB typewriter hack, where uh, you can probably explain it better than I can, but a guy figured out how to make a typewriter interface with a computer monitor and right. therefore a CPU. It's, it's, a, it's basically an open source program that you can buy, it's a kit. You uh, affix it to the bottom of the typewriter, where uh, to, to the levers, and each each key has a different lever. 
and, and then um, apply a monitor to the top of the typewriter where the carriage would be. And as you type, say, say an iPad, iPad or something like that, and as you type on the typewriter, it, uh, the, I, uh, the monitor will actually type in real time, not on paper, but in virtual. I think that's just amazing, but uh, one of the things I also read, and I know this is, your, your, your enterprise is called the Anti-Key Chop? Is that the Anti-Key Chop. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a group of people, it's more of an, I just want to educate, there's a group of people that go out there and they make jewelry out of, out of keys and they cut the keys off of the typewriters and generally the rest of the typewriter is thrown away, which is, which is a shame. So uh, as a philosophy, I, uh, I am the Anti-Key Chop. That's the name of my store, that's the name of my business. Um, I, one time, there's, there's, in the Great Depression, there's a typewriter that was made. It had one of those uh, keyboards with animal prints all over it to touch, uh, teach kids how to touch type. Um, some chopper got his hands on it, cut the keys off, and that is a very scarce typewriter. Typewriter went to waste. That, I, I can almost hear the scream of the typewriter. <laughs> I mean, it seems like hipsters are the solution and they're their problem. It's probably hipsters who are buying the typewriters on eBay and chopping them up for jewelry, and then it's hipsters who are saving the typewriter. Um, I don't think it's hipsters. It's circle of life. I don't think hipsters are buying from eBay. Hipsters generally go to Salvation Army. They don't right. have a lot of money. Uh, they spend five dollars, and that's about it. I, I, yeah, I stand corrected on that. And we're going to go out to the uh, audience here and take a few questions, and also help Greg with his oral history, or perhaps also help Walter Woodward uh, begin to coalesce some of these typewriter stories, and also take your questions as well uh, during the thank yous. I of course got the wrong name of the of the intern who's working today. Andrew is actually here. It's his, really his first day of being an intern. He's got the floating mic out there. I also want to say another thank you uh, very quickly uh, to Gina Amatruda, who's back at the mothership right now. Uh, he's the reason that we can stay in touch with the mothership on Asylum Hill here from uh, the New, New Britain Museum of American Art. So Andrew, you've got the floating mic and you found Chris and there he is. All right, Chris, take it away. You've got actually a story. You've got, uh, you got family blood. Uh, I've got a 100-year-old family story. I had a fact check with my cousin this morning. Uh, my grandfather and his brother, uh, Bart and Richard Kelly, worked at Underwood Typewriter about 1918. Uh, my uncle's aspiration was to get out of Underwood and get to uh, Travelers. Uh, Travelers was considered a more stable job, but Underwood did pay more. You were just subjected to uh, layoffs because they would, you know, supply and demand. If they had too many typewriters, they would just lay people off. Um, my, uh, the other reason my uncle wanted to get out of there was his job was to carry typewriters to the delivery point. So as a teenage boy, uh, he would take the typewriter from Underwood and bring it to, you know, wherever the customer was. And uh, Weighing 90 pounds one day, he was delivering one of the typewriters and uh, had to sit down and take a break. And just then the big boss of Underwood came by in his carriage, stopped the carriage, got out, yelled at him for sitting down and told him to get on his way and got back in his carriage. And he made it ethnic, actually, right? Didn't he? he made it ethnic. He said, get your lazy you Irish know, butt I hurt. confused that story. That was actually a traveler's so slur, a traveler's not an <laughs> Underwood slur. Yeah. Yeah. I was ready to... Take the ethic slur anywhere it would go, actually. Um, okay, anybody else who just stick a hand up if you have a question or a comment. While that's happening, um, Walter, I don't know if we really said this, but obviously part, I mean, first of all, that seems like an incredibly inefficient way to deliver typewriters, to have one person carry them where there's, well, each typewriter where it's supposed to go. But part of the story of typewriters, I assume, is part of the story, is also the story of the insurance industry, of this other gigantic essentially clerical operations. Absolutely. Insurance and finance drove the typewriter business in a lot of ways because the 
the core of their business is record keeping. Mm. And typewriters made the volume of record keeping that you had to do to run these mega companies possible. So if you had a, if you had a, a typewriter factory in Hartford, it was really good because you had many insurance companies that you could send Chris's grandfather down yeah. the street with a typewriter and your delivery charges were much less than they might be to Pittsburgh. Um, and it was the collapse that Greg described of the typewriter industry in Connecticut, was that just basically the story of the collapse of industry in Connecticut? I mean, did it all kind of happen at once? Well, it, they happened together, globalization and uh, suburbanization, white flight to the suburbs, all of that were factors. But the change, the IBM Selectric followed by the computer revolution accelerated the demise of typewriters. Mm. So uh, Royal that in 1960, that was, a, that was a peak sales time for them. Ten years later, they laid off half their workforce. Uh, ten years after that, they're gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so the, the, that little type, the electric typewriter with the ball was the death knell for Royal and Underwood. Right. Um, so where is the mic now? Is the mic somewhere? There. Many people are pointing fingers. So person with mic, uh, start talking. Yes, uh, oh, there you are. I my see. mother was one who uh, was one of the stay-at-home moms who got a job typing at home for a dressograph machine in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she would have these little uh, little slot that you'd put these little uh, cards that had a paper kind of mesh on it, and she would type these up by the hour all day long and put them in boxes and send them off, and that's how mail got mailed. So did you have to type the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog over and over again? No, I don't think so. Do My something. father was a faster typer than she was, and he would, he would do 120 words a minute on a typewriter. Um, wow. Stick your hand up if you want the microphone, and uh, Andrew will get it over to you. Well, while that's happening, somebody, um, Greg, uh, during the break, uh, actually it's the lady who's not allowed to cross her legs, as she is known. <laughs> is she allowed to cross her legs now? Is, it turn out, is there anybody there in the other room? Oh, all right, so you, can, you still cannot cross your legs. And I, I actually feel guilty that I'm crossing my legs because I know you're not allowed to. Because here's the problem. We have an overflow audience over here in another room, and then there's a camera that broadcasts. I don't know why they're watching a radio show on TV in another room, but they are. And, but if this poor woman here crosses her legs, they can't see it anymore. Uh, so that's what that's all about. But she, uh, that's a long way of saying, she wanted to know about the keyboard, the QWERTY keyboard. And you've, you've got a little bit of a background on QWERTY, right? Uh, the QWERTY keyboard, Christopher Latham Scholes, one of the inventors of that first uh, typewriter, he was a, he was a uh, printer, and he, he knew which letters of the alphabet were used most frequently. So the way that the keyboard is set up isn't, inf- uh, as most people think, to slow down the operator. It's actually to help prevent jam-ups and let the operator type quicker. Uh, And that was a good method then, but as typewriter technology advanced, there have been better layouts. Um, Unfortunately, for the first 10 plus years, Remington and Scholes and Glidden had a coup on the market, and we as creatures of habit got very used to the QWERTY layout. And so even though these better ones came around, we just didn't want to use them. Yeah, and there's uh, Vorjak is one of them. Right. And, I mean, are they, have you tried them? Are they any? I've tried, the, the only one I've tried is the, something called the Scientific that was made about 1890 on the Blick and Zerfer typewriter. Again, very innovative. The bottom row uh, has all of the most used uh, letters in the alphabet. 
so you scarcely ever have to move your fingers to the top two rows. And the reason that's possible is because of that type wheel that never ever jams up on that typewriter. Unlike a traditional machine where the type bars would jam up and you'd have to stick your finger in there and try to unjam it and get ink on your finger and wipe it on your forehead and um, <laughs> hopefully somebody would tell you. Right. Um, I'm see, feeling like those Blickensdorf were, it was like the Steve Jobs of the typewriter. It's super, they were, they super were innovative. The, they, were the, they were the innovators. All right, we got uh, you know, somebody over here. Oh yeah, yes sir. Um, some typewriter trivia that I collected along the way. It's my understanding that Mark Twain is credited with being the first author to submit a manuscript uh, typewritten. That is absolutely uh, correct. For living on the river, I think. Right. Mike, Mark Twain was uh, loved all things technology. At the time, 1874, I believe it was, he lived in Hartford, and he purchased one of the first thousand shows and glidens. Uh, which came with a uh, stand, not unlike a sewing machine stand, with a with, with a foot-operated treadle that would return the carriage. Um, yeah, technology. But yes, he did he did submit uh, his manuscript uh, on a typewritten machine, a blind writer, no less, which is a machine where you can't actually see what you're typing. If you want to inspect what you're typing, you have to flip up the carriage, look at it, make your corrections with a quill pen, flip it back down to resume. A little design flaw that eventually I, I hope was <laughs> was fixed. Uh, cir circulate the mic around. We'll probably have time for a question or or two more. I mean, you know, the, just taking us back to that era, Greg, is also making me think uh, about the typewriter renaissance that's going on right now, which I think aesthetically is not unconnected to what we call steampunk, right? I mean, there's sort of a way in which Walter's nodding. He's into steampunk. Uh, there's a way in which there's sort of a romance of uh, of the way things worked in the Victorian era. Uh, and, and maybe it is sort of an implied rejection or uh, of or alternative to how digital and soundless and smooth everything is now. What's most interesting about steampunk and this new renaissance in the typewriter to me is that it rejects technology while it embraces technology. It's, mm. you know, it, it doesn't want to go all the way back to a pre-technology era, but it's suspicious of, of what we have today. All right, I see the microphone over there. What have you got for us? For those of us who- Talk right into that microphone, that's the key. Yeah. Speak, speak right into it. Um, there you for those of us that uh, still have uh, typewriters, our old Selectrics, and uh, we don't know what to do with them. We don't really want to get rid of them, but it doesn't seem anybody wants them. What, what, hap what can we do with our old typewriters? Well, your old manual typewriters, you can donate to me. <laughs> <laughs> as far as your electric typewriters, um, I don't know anything about electric typewriters. I, I can't work on them. There really isn't much of a market for them unless you happen to have like a pink IBM Selectric or a red IBM Selectric, which were about 10% of the market um, at the time. And maybe they have a little bit of value, but it still isn't very much. Yeah, I don't know whether you can do the, the hack that we were talking about before. By the way, we can probably get one more question in, so uh, Andrew, grab the mic and see if you can get it to one more person here before we run out of time. I don't know if you can do that hack. The, the USB hack with, a, with an electric, it probably doesn't work? Absolutely not. The electric, um, especially the IBM electric, has that type ball. You need the type bars, each individual type bar for that to work. Um, we're, uh, we could probably get one more question in if we've got the mic to the person yet. Uh, while that's happening, though, uh, I, I want to take this moment anyway to thank everybody who, from my team here who helped out. You met them all. You've heard the, all their names. And now Mr. John Dankosky, the big boss, uh, is here. He's standing at the back. So you can direct all of your complaints uh, <laughs> to him. Um, so does somebody have the mic right now? 
All right, so there are no, no more questions. So Greg, um, tell us a little bit very quickly. What, I think one thing we didn't do was really say how many typewriters are actually out there in the exhibit, which I believe is running through June 1st here. Running through June museum. 1st at the New Britain Museum of American Art. There's 21 typewriters in the show, plus I have four badges in the show for employees uh, of, uh, of Royal, which represent the 1940s, which I should mention. Um, during the World War II, as metal was rationed in the United States, um, typewriter companies stopped producing typewriters and began making things like initial parts and um, to really to help the allies. So there are four badges, uh, four employee badges, and 21 typewriters, some specialty typewriters like the teaching typewriter. Um, there is a focus on design, obviously, uh, Victorian design, uh, Art Nouveau design, Art Deco design, and also there's about specifically eight Connecticut-made manufacturers represented here. Yeah, I mean, not all the typewriters here are Connecticut typewriters, right? I mean, the industry, it, wasn't, it was centered in Connecticut, but not exclusively in Connecticut. Correct. There are several typewriters from Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Chicago, uh, other great hubs for manufacturing typewriters. Um, I don't know if I, I first of all, I, I also feel, you know, looking at this, I feel this tremendous sense of disloyalty because for me, the kind of Proustian moment when I connected with a typewriter was this one that my parents gave to me when I was about, I think, a freshman in high school, and it was a Smith Corona, mm. uh, which I now feel like a traitor or something like that. that. That's okay. I can sell you one. You can sell me one. Yeah. <laughs> I, it really is true that, you know, it was a moment where, did you, did, Walter, did you ever write on a typewriter? Did you ever just? Oh, no. Like, I wrote on a typewriter, yeah. and it, yeah, there's, it has its own feel to it, yeah. its own aesthetic. Uh, they do have souls. Uh, they are amazing. Uh, and the ones here, I mean, you say the word typewriter and you have one mental picture. Right. And in fact, there are a lot of different mental pictures out here. They all look really, really different from one another. I want to quickly say the exhibit is Click, Clack, Ding, the American Typewriter. It runs through uh, June 1st here at the New Britain Museum of American Art. Uh, there's an opening reception. Has it already happened? No, it's Thursday. Thursday, Thursday night. Thursday night, 5.30 to 7.30. You can be part of the New Britain glitterati that shows up here for the opening reception. Thanks to everybody who helped out. Thanks for you, to you for coming out. How about let's hear it for this museum, for typewriters, for everything. Chairs, which you will ascend waving a flag adorned with a photocopy of your own buttocks. When the revolution comes, casual Friday will become pants optional Friday. That thing that happened in the supply closet last Christmas party will cease to be such a big freaking deal when the revolution comes. When your faith in total collapse outweighs your faith in technology, the revolution will be typewritten. The revolution will not be on Facebook, will not be on MyFace, will not be on Twitter. The revolution will be typed. How can my muse want subject to invent while thou dost breathe, breathe? What is wrong with this typewriter? Anyone know where the control alt delete is on this thing?